0: In April of 1781, the situation was this. In the north, American Commander-in-Chief George Washington and the main American army were in New Jersey. They had been largely inactive for more than two years as fighting in the south dominated the war. Washington had sent waves of troops from his main army to the southern army, but the main army had seen very little action of its own. Though, while it was inactive, it had welcomed thousands of reinforcements from France, and there were now 8,000 soldiers in the Allied camp. About 30 miles away, in New York City, British Commander-in-Chief Henry Clinton had a force of about 15,000 soldiers. Clinton had opened the Southern Theater of the War two and a half years earlier when he sailed down to Savannah, Georgia, and captured the key port city. Then he placed his principal lieutenant, General Charles Cornwallis, in charge of the Southern Department and he sailed back up to New York. Clinton hunkered down in his luxurious headquarters, settled into a stalemate with George Washington, and monitored the results of the Southern campaign. In the South, at Wilmington, North Carolina, General Cornwallis had been resting and feeding his army. A month earlier, The British Southern Army had won the Battle of Guilford Courthouse near the modern-day city of Greensboro. But the victory had been so destructive to the British force that Cornwallis had been forced to abandon the interior of the state and move his army to the supply base at Wilmington to rest and recuperate. On the American side, after the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, while Cornwallis headed for Wilmington, General Nathaniel Greene and the American Southern Army reclaimed nearly all the territory that had been lost in South Carolina and Georgia over the past two and a half years. After months of nonstop fighting and marching, Greene set up camp in mid-July 1781 to rest his men for the remainder of the summer. It had been an incredible reversal of fortune for the British. At the beginning of 1781, the British controlled all the important territory in Georgia and South Carolina, and a few spots in North Carolina. By summer, nearly all of that territory was back in American hands, and British forces were isolated in Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, and Wilmington, North Carolina, though the force in Wilmington was now back to being a simple garrison at a supply base. General Cornwallis had faced a difficult choice— After the American Southern Army had retaken all that territory in South Carolina and Georgia, he could go back down there and try to take it all back. Or he could go north and unite with a British force in Virginia. That force was commanded by American defector and current British general, Benedict Arnold. Cornwallis chose to go north to Virginia, and that's where the war would end. From Black Barrel Media, Q-Code, and the Historic Camden Foundation, this is Mission History. I'm Chris Wimmer, and this is the story of the American Revolution, with a focus on the soldiers from both sides who fought at the critical battle of Camden, South Carolina. This is Episode 8, A New Nation. This podcast is brought to you by the Historic Camden Foundation. And we pose the question, what makes a hero? Courage, honor, sacrifice, a willingness to lay down one's life for a greater cause. More than 240 years ago, thousands clashed in a pine forest in the sweltering South Carolina summer during the American Revolutionary War. Hundreds made the ultimate sacrifice. Go to Camden, South Carolina to visit the hallowed ground of the Camden battlefield. Walk the trails that were used by regiments from Maryland and Delaware England and Scotland, and more. The Historic Camden Foundation interprets revolutionary history in cooperation with the Revolutionary War Visitor Center. Experience hands-on history at their 100-acre colonial town site. See the battlefield, the Longleaf Pine Preserve, the Kershaw House, where British General Charles Cornwallis made his headquarters, and more. Go to historiccamden.org to plan your visit and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Historic Camden Foundation. General Cornwallis had rested his army in Wilmington for about a month in the spring of 1781. He and his officers had debated their two choices, go north or go south, and the northern choice won out by a slim margin. In late April 1781, Cornwallis marched out of Wilmington and headed north toward Virginia. A month later, his troops united with Benedict Arnold's detachment. Arnold had led a force of about 1,600 men on an attack on Richmond five months earlier. They did a lot of damage and then retreated down to the Petersburg area and generally stayed there near the James River. By late May 1781, Arnold's column had united with yet another British column to total about 5,000 men. Then Cornwallis arrived with his column and joined the two forces together at a plantation on the James. Cornwallis now commanded between 7,000 and 8,000 soldiers. They marched east toward two of the oldest British settlements in America, Jamestown and Williamsburg. Beyond those two towns, there was a peninsula of land that jutted out into Chesapeake Bay with direct access to the Atlantic Ocean. The goal was to build a base to receive supplies from General Henry Clinton's headquarters in New York. But before the new combined army had moved very far, it ran into an American force led by a young French officer. Gilbert du better known as the Marquis de Lafayette, led a column of 4,000 soldiers. The 24-year-old French officer had become a trusted companion of George Washington, and Washington had sent him south to harass Cornwallis' army everywhere it went. For ten weeks, the Marquis's army shadowed Cornwallis' army. On the Virginia Peninsula, the Marquis thought he had a chance to attack the rear guard of the British column. On the morning of July 6, 1781, the advance guard of the American army clashed with units under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton. After the skirmish, the Marquis ordered the entire army to form up for battle. He thought he had an advantage, but he didn't realize he had marched into a trap. General Cornwallis had positioned his larger army of 7,000 soldiers in a formation to ambush the smaller American force. A brigade of British veterans slammed into the American right flank with a deadly bayonet charge, while the British light infantry pushed hard against the American left flank. Just before the action began, the Marquis realized his error, but it was too late. Both flanks fought a pitched battle for about 15 minutes before the Marquis was able to order an American withdrawal. The American force retreated up the peninsula to Richmond to lick its wounds. The British Army continued its march down the peninsula and started building its supply base at a town on the York River called Yorktown. The Battle of Green Spring, as the engagement was called, was yet another Pyrrhic victory for the British. They won the battle, but took another step toward losing the war. At the time, the idea of setting up a supply base at Yorktown didn't seem like a bad call, but it would prove to be a trap far worse than the one Cornwallis had just laid for the Marquis. When the American army reached Richmond, the Marquis sent a message to George Washington up in Phillipsburg, New York, in the area of modern-day Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow. The Marquis asked for reinforcements to continue the pursuit of Cornwallis' army. George Washington did him one better. He marched south with the entire Allied army. Washington had been strategizing with his counterpart, the Comte de Rochambeau, who was the commander-in-chief of the French Expeditionary Force. Rochambeau had arrived in America a year earlier with 5,500 French troops, and he had recently moved his army from Rhode Island to Phillipsburg outside New York City to unite with the American army. Washington wanted to find a way to attack British commander Henry Clinton in New York, but it would be a tall order for an army of any size. Clinton had roughly 15,000 men in New York and they had been entrenched there for five years. Forcing them out might well be an impossible task. And either way, whether the target was New York or Virginia, Washington knew he had little chance of success without the help of the French Navy. In the end, the French admiral who commanded the fleet made the decision. He was stationed in the West Indies with 37 ships and 3,000 troops. He informed Washington and Rochambeau that he was setting sail for Virginia. Yorktown was easier to reach and more vulnerable than New York. If the combined Franco-American army could hurry south and link up with the Marquis de Lafayette's force in Virginia, and if the French Navy could control Chesapeake Bay, they could trap Cornwallis at Yorktown and isolate him with no hope of relief or resupply. It was a bold strategy and a winner-take-all gamble. It would have to be the largest troop movement on the American side of the war. 8,000 men would have to travel more than 350 miles while deceiving the British main army about the purpose of the movement. The exercise would have to be a triumph of coordination that was infused with a healthy dose of luck. But Washington and Rochambeau agreed it was worth the risk, and on August 18th, 8,000 men started their march. Two weeks later, there was a three-day burst of action that signaled the beginning of the final phase of the war. From Connecticut to Chesapeake Bay to South Carolina and then Virginia, the end was near. On September 5th, 1781, one month after the French fleet sailed out of the West Indies, it arrived in Chesapeake Bay on the Virginia coast. Luckily for the French and the Americans, There was no sign of the British fleet, but that was only by chance. A small British fleet had been in Chesapeake Bay looking for the French fleet, which it knew was on the way. But with no sign of the French, the small British fleet hurried up the coast to New York to regroup at headquarters and figure out the next move. Four days later, the French fleet arrived at Chesapeake Bay and sailed in unopposed. And this was where the geography of the Bay and the Virginia Peninsula helped the French and the Americans. As a peninsula, it was a narrow strip of land that was surrounded by water on three sides, the Chesapeake Bay, the York River, and the James River. General Cornwallis was building his naval base at Yorktown on the York River. So the French fleet sailed around the other side of the peninsula and up the James River. On the banks of the james there was not surprisingly jamestown and just above jamestown was williamsburg where the marquis de lafayette's army was now stationed the fleet started offloading troops and supplies and that was when lookouts spotted the british fleet sailing into the bay the french sailors scrambled to get their ships back into the water to meet the oncoming british navy It was chaos for a while as both fleets battled the windy conditions to position their ships before they could battle each other. At 4.15 p.m., out in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Virginia, both fleets were in formation and they opened fire on each other. For more than two hours, sounds of the naval battle drifted toward the coastline. Explosions of cannon fire, shattering wood, eruptions of water, and screaming men. Only Sunset stopped the battle. When the fleets separated, the British were in bad shape. Six ships had been damaged, 90 sailors had been killed, and another 246 had been wounded. The French only had two ships damaged and 209 total casualties. The French fleet kept the British fleet out of the bay, but they stayed within sight of each other for a few days. While each waited for the other to make a move, additional French ships sailed into the bay. With such a large French force now arrayed against them, the British abandoned the effort and sailed back to New York. The French fleet had done its part. It now owned Chesapeake Bay and blocked all chances of reinforcement or resupply for Cornwallis' army. Now, the French sailors just needed to wait for the army to arrive. The Battle of the Capes, as the engagement was called, was a bitter pill to swallow for the British. There was only one bright spot. Before the French fleet had fully locked down Chesapeake Bay, British Commander-in-Chief Henry Clinton had ordered General Benedict Arnold to assemble a force of about 1,600 men and sail up to New London, Connecticut. New London was a valuable port city that contained stockpiles of goods and ammunition for the American war effort. Arnold and his men were able to slip out of the bay and sail north. At sunrise on September 6th, the day after the Battle of the Capes, lookouts in New London spotted Arnold's fleet of about 30 ships. The townspeople knew they couldn't hold out against a force of that size. They hurried to their ships and fled before the invasion. That left just the tiny garrisons at Fort Trumbull and Fort Griswold to protect the town. When Arnold's fleet landed, he split his force in two. He led a detachment of 800 straight into New London. He sent the other detachment of 800 to attack the two forts. In town, Arnold's men started destroying everything of use. In the process of burning warehouses, his men didn't know that there was a store of gunpowder in one of them. When the gunpowder exploded, it started a fire that rampaged through town. A huge portion of the town, 143 buildings, was burned to the ground. While the town burned, the other detachment attacked the forts. Fort Trumbull was guarded by just 23 men. The defenders fired one volley at the British, then abandoned the fort and hurried to Fort Griswold. At Fort Griswold, the British offered the Americans the chance to surrender, twice, but the Americans refused. There were only about 150 men inside the fort versus about 800 British soldiers outside the fort. But the defenders believed reinforcements were on the way, and they chose to hold out. The British attacked. During the bloody and chaotic battle, the American commander was killed in potentially controversial fashion, possibly while he was trying to surrender. There are so many conflicting accounts that it's impossible to know for sure what happened. American accounts claimed the defenders tried to surrender after the attackers breached the walls of the fort. The British kept attacking and killed lots of soldiers when the Americans thought the battle was over. On the American side, the battle went down in history as a massacre at Fort Griswold. Whatever the truth of the events, Benedict Arnold led an assault on a town in his home colony of Connecticut and captured the town as ordered. The mission was a success, but it failed to produce the desired outcome. General Clinton had hoped the attack would force George Washington to abandon his march toward Virginia, or at least divert some of his men to deal with the new threat in Connecticut. Neither option happened. George Washington would not have been happy with the loss of life and property, but he had no intention of changing a plan that he believed could end the war. His Allied army was making good progress on its march south, and he couldn't afford to lose focus on the bigger picture. Whatever was about to happen in Virginia could be the whole ball game, as we might say in modern times. But whatever it was going to be, it hadn't happened yet. And there was still one fight left in the south. That battle would signal the close of the southern theater of the war and its result would shift all eyes to the Virginia campaign. The battle happened just two days after the attack on New London. The American Southern Army had been resting for two months, all of July and August, after having marched and fought for seven straight months to begin the year 1781. The Army, with the help of local militia units, Had successfully reclaimed all the territory that the british had controlled in south carolina and georgia the british were now isolated in the port cities of savannah georgia and charleston south carolina and the american commander in the south wanted to strike the british army around charleston scottish lieutenant colonel alexander stewart had arrived in charleston in june with three regiments of reinforcements in august he left the city with a column of soldiers and marched inland he eventually set up camp along the banks of a small offshoot of the santee river about 45 miles north of charleston the place was called utah springs and that was where major general nathaniel Greene's southern army collided with lieutenant colonel stewart's column advance units of both armies met early in the morning of september 8, 1781. it was three days after the naval battle off the coast of virginia and two days after the attack on New London. The units clashed on the main road that ran through the area, and heavy firing started immediately. The British force had sent out parties to forage for food. Those parties heard the gunfire and worked their way back to the road, and many of them became entangled in the skirmish between the advance units. By that point, both commanders were rushing their main units up to the battleground for a full-scale fight. About 3,000 American soldiers squared off against 1,500 British soldiers who were fit for duty in Stewart's column. When the main units engaged, the fighting was vicious, with units sometimes firing when they were nearly muzzle to muzzle. The Americans used a two-line strategy, similar to the one that had worked at the Battle of Cowpens, but failed at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. A line of militiamen was out in front to make first contact with the British, and a line of regular Continental soldiers backed them up. Here, at the Battle of Utah Springs, the strategy produced mixed results. The American militia units, which typically did not fare well against British regular soldiers, stood their ground better than they had in previous battles. But even those more sturdy units had their breaking point. Soon, the militiamen started to retreat. Then a brand new unit of North Carolina Continental Soldiers gave way and started to retreat. That opened a gap in the center of the American lines. British soldiers charged through the gap with fixed bayonets. Virginia Continentals and Maryland Continentals, led by Colonel Otho Holland Williams and Lieutenant Colonel John Eager Howard, filled the gap, shattered the attack, and kept the American hopes alive. That was when the battle became close-quarters combat. Musket balls and cannonballs tore through the lines. Infantrymen stabbed with bayonets. Units of cavalry charged and their officers slashed with swords. The battle flowed over fields and through thick pine trees. It engulfed a brick house where a group of British soldiers found sanctuary. American cannon bombarded the house, but the defenders remained inside and one of them landed a nearly fatal blow on Lieutenant Colonel Howard. He was shot in the upper chest and the ball broke his collarbone, but he stayed on the field until the four-hour battle finally fizzled out when darkness and then rain covered the battleground. Both sides suffered tremendous casualties and the outcome followed a familiar pattern. Historian Jim Paikuch put it well. American General Nathaniel Green had once again suffered a tactical defeat, only to emerge with a strategic victory. Green's army couldn't crush the British column, but it marked the final time that a sizable British force left the safety of Charleston. Lieutenant Colonel Stewart led the British column back to Charleston, and at that time, the thinking was probably that they would regroup and figure out the next step in the ongoing war. But there would be no next step for British soldiers in the South at least not one that involved fighting. Three weeks after the Battle of Utah Springs, the Allied Army of French and American troops arrived at Yorktown, Virginia. While the American Southern Army was fighting its last battle, the Allied Northern Army was making good progress toward Virginia. Commander-in-Chief George Washington and Lieutenant General Rochambeau had divided their huge army into multiple columns for the march. By early September, the columns were spread out across northern Maryland and Delaware. During their march, American agents had purchased a motley flotilla of boats to shuttle as many soldiers as possible from Maryland down to Virginia. About 2,600 soldiers loaded into the boats and sailed down Chesapeake Bay to the peninsula. The rest of the army completed the march on foot. Over the next three weeks, all the columns and units reunited at Williamsburg, where they joined the Marquis de Lafayette's army. The French navy dropped off more troops and local militia numbers swelled. On September 26, 1781, 20 days after the Battle of Utah Springs, the Allied force in Virginia totaled roughly 18,000 men, 9,000 American soldiers and 9,000 French soldiers. The British defenders inside Yorktown totaled just 7,000 men. General Cornwallis' army quickly fortified Yorktown. The town sits right on the banks of the York River, so it had water on one side. A defensive perimeter of ditches, Earthworks and palisades stretched all the way around the town to guard the other three sides. Beyond the town, there were a series of earthen redoubts, essentially small outposts that could hold cannons and troops. The last feature was straight across the York River. There was another peninsula, and the tip of that peninsula pointed straight at Yorktown. It was, and still is, called Gloucester Point. Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton was stationed on Gloucester Point with at least 600 men who were a mix of cavalry and infantry. So that was the setup. The British main army was entrenched behind heavy fortifications at Yorktown, and Tarleton had a small force across the river at Gloucester Point. Everyone knew the score. The Franco American Allied Army was going to lay siege to Yorktown. As always with a siege, it would be a matter of time. But that was where the kicker came in. It was late September, and the admiral who commanded the French fleet started the ticking clock. The admiral told Washington and Rochambeau that his ships had to leave Chesapeake Bay in one month, by late October, to avoid the winter storms that would start to ravage the American coastline. The French fleet was the key to the whole siege. Without it, the British fleet could reinforce and resupply Yorktown indefinitely. The generals had exactly one month to begin and end the job, so they started immediately. Across the river at Gloucester Point, a Virginia militia unit and two French units positioned themselves outside Tarleton's defenses. Tarleton's force was now trapped on the point. At Yorktown, the Allied army formed a giant ring around the town, On September 28, 1781, they pulled out the spades. French engineers directed the work of digging trenches to move closer to the British redoubts and the town beyond them. Day and night, French and American troops dug with shovels and hacked with axes. Within just two days, General Cornwallis ordered the British soldiers who were stationed at the outer defenses, the redoubts, to abandon their positions and fall back to the town. With that order, every British soldier was now in Yorktown, and the Allied army could dig its trenches nearly right up to the perimeter. The British lobbed a few artillery shells from the town, but the cannon fire did little damage and didn't even pause the Allies' work. Across the York River on October 3rd, five days after the digging began outside Yorktown, the Virginia militia and the French units clashed with some of Tarleton's force. Tarleton and about 600 of his men were foraging for food a couple miles outside their defenses. The French units moved forward and engaged the British. During the firefight, the Virginia militia moved in and helped drive the British force back to their fortified area. The French and the American commanders stationed their troops a mile from the British defenses, and that's where they stayed for the next three weeks. It was the last time Tarleton was able to leave his position. Outside Yorktown, the digging continued After 11 days, the Allied trenches were within musket range of the British perimeter around the town The Allied commanders positioned their artillery to bombard the town And now the real action began On the afternoon of October 9th, French cannons opened fire Shortly thereafter, American cannons opened fire for nearly a week, they pounded the town and the British defenses all day, every day. And while the artillery barrage shattered fortifications and rattled nerves, the Allied infantrymen kept digging. Five days later, some of the lines were right outside two of the British redoubts that were closer to town. General Cornwallis had kept his men in place at those positions, redoubt number nine and redoubt number 10. They were 400 yards in front of the British defensive perimeter, and the Allied army would have to take them by force to get within striking distance of the town. All day on October 14th, the Allied artillery battered the two positions in preparation for a rare nighttime assault. It was a moonless night, and French and American forces crept closer to the redoubts. Just like the American raid on Stony Point, New York, two years earlier, the assaulters at Yorktown kept their weapons unloaded. They couldn't afford to give away the surprise attack by an accidental gunshot. They fixed their bayonets and waited for the go order. The operational password was Rochambeau. The commanders issued the password, and the assault started. The French attacked readout number 9, and the Americans attacked readout number 10. The assaulters stormed the positions and climbed over the defenses. Fierce fighting erupted at both positions. There was close quarters and sometimes hand to hand. Two regiments of French grenadiers captured readout number nine, and Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Hamilton led the American force that quickly captured readout number 10. By sunrise on October 15th, the Allied army controlled all the ground outside the Yorktown perimeter. At 4 a.m. the next morning, British General Charles Cornwallis ordered a counterattack as a last ditch effort to try to push back the Allied forces. The British attacked some unfinished Allied earthworks and actually captured a couple French artillery positions, but the attackers were quickly halted and forced to retreat back to town. Across the river at Gloucester Point, a similar scene played out. Tarleton's force tried to break through the Allied lines, but the attempt failed. In both places, the British were out of options, and they knew it. The next morning, a lone British drummer boy stepped up onto the defenses and pattered the beat that signaled the British wanted to talk. Then, a British officer stepped up next to him, The officer held up his sword with a white handkerchief tied to the tip. General Cornwallis wanted to discuss terms for a surrender.
1: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Go to bioptimizers.com/balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at BIOPTIMIZERS.com/balance. Magnesium breakthrough from Bioptimizers, Your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
0: According to the tradition of the time, a defeated army that had fought well was allowed to surrender under terms that were called the honors of war. The defeated soldiers could march out of their position with their flags flying high and their band playing a song that honored the winners. The British had not allowed those terms for the American Southern Army that surrendered at Charleston the previous year. That denial humiliated the American Army. Now, George Washington repaid the favor. He would not give the British the honors of war terms and they marched out of Yorktown with their flags in their cases. Nearly 7,000 men became prisoners, including the remaining members of the 2nd Battalion of the 71st Regiment of Foot, Fraser's Highlanders. The largest British army outside of New York was eliminated. Five weeks later, news of the surrender reached London. Prime Minister Lord Frederick North read the dispatch and said, Oh God, it is all over. It is all over." He was right, but it wasn't over right away. It took five months for Parliament to authorize the British government to make peace with the new American states. The 13 colonies that had rebelled six years earlier had called themselves states, the United States of America, in their Declaration of Independence. But between the summer of 1776 and the spring of 1781, the terms states and colonies were pretty much interchangeable. That changed on March 2nd, 1781, when the 13 colonies ratified a document called the Articles of Confederation, which officially made them states of a new nation. Seven and a half months later, General Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown, and the war was unofficially over. Five months after the surrender, in early March 1782, Parliament authorized entrance into peace negotiations with the United States. 15 days after that, Prime Minister Lord North resigned. The following month, in April 1782, the Netherlands became the first country outside of those involved in the war to officially recognize American independence. And that summer, the withdrawal began. British troops started the slow process of leaving America. In July, the British evacuated Savannah, Georgia. In November, British and American representatives in Paris signed a preliminary peace treaty. In December, two weeks before Christmas 1782, the British evacuated Charleston, South Carolina. For the first time in four years, there were no British troops in the southern states. Nearly a year later, on September 3, 1783, the United States and Great Britain signed the Treaty of Paris, the peace treaty that officially ended the American Revolutionary War. Two months later, the last British troops left America when they sailed away from New York. At that point, the revolution was finally complete. The Continental Army disbanded. Nine days after the British left New York, American Commander-in-Chief George Washington traveled to the city that he had been forced to give up seven long years earlier. The purpose of Washington's visit was to bid farewell to his officers, many of whom, like most of the regular soldiers, had fought for years with few supplies and little or no pay. Washington's final act as Commander-in-Chief was to give up his position It was fitting that he resigned his commission and gave his final speech in Annapolis, Maryland, the home state of some of his most reliable soldiers. Members of the 1st Maryland Regiment, forever known as the Old Maryland Line, fought in nearly every major battle of the war, both North and South. Same with the 1st Delaware Regiment. Lieutenant Colonel John Eager Howard of the 1st Maryland Regiment was elected governor of Maryland five years after the Continental Army finished its service. He was a genuine war hero and one of a quartet of officers from the Maryland regiments who were honored after the war. The others were William Smallwood, Mordecai Gist, and Otho Holland Williams. Howard was instrumental in laying the groundwork for one of America's first and most important railroads, the Baltimore and Ohio, otherwise known as the B&O which should sound familiar to lovers of the board game Monopoly. Howard passed bills to create parks, roads, bridges, and other infrastructure projects around Maryland. And for many of those things, he gave them names that honored his time fighting in the South. For baseball fans, the major league team the Baltimore Orioles plays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Camden Yards was named for Camden, South Carolina, the battles that Howard fought in the area. Likewise, Utah Street, which borders Camden Yards, was named for Utah Springs, South Carolina, the site of the final battle of the Southern Campaign. For Marylanders who have always wondered about the unique spelling of Utah, E-U-T-A-W, that's where it comes from. All across the expanding American nation, Cities, towns, streets, buildings, businesses, and public spaces were named after the volunteers from other countries who were vital to the American war effort. Things like Rochambeau Restaurant in Boston, named after the French Lieutenant General. Lafayette Street in New York and Lafayette, Louisiana, named after the young Marquis. Pulaski, Tennessee, named after the Polish cavalry commander, Casimir Pulaski. A county north of Atlanta, Georgia, was named after Bavarian General Baron Johann de Cobb, who led the Maryland and Delaware regiments in the Battle of Camden and died of injuries sustained in the fight. The name of the county is usually pronounced DeCab or DeKalb, but it's the thought that counts. And those examples are just a tiny fraction of the total. When waves of British troops sailed back to England, the surviving members of Fraser's Highlanders returned home. Some of the original 2,000 members of the 71st Regiment afoot made it through the war unscathed. Many more returned with physical and psychological wounds. And, like British, French, and Hessian troops, thousands didn't return at all. They were buried on battlefields or in camps or hospital cemeteries across 2,000 miles of territory in America. In Camden, South Carolina, one Highlander, who was likely an officer, was buried in a grave near the great wagon road that ran through the middle of the battleground. He was probably buried where he fell, as were nearly all of the soldiers who died in the engagement. Just a few feet away, there was a grave that held five American soldiers who had been thrown into a shallow hole together. Given their position on the battlefield, they were probably men from Maryland. There might be as many as 400 soldiers, some of whom were just teenagers, buried in the sand of that section of pine trees north of Camden. Over the years, some of their graves have suffered badly from natural erosion, industry, and human interference. In November of 2022, an effort began to give proper burials to a few whose resting places were in danger of further destruction. The remains of 14 soldiers were carefully and solemnly excavated for burial. In April, 2023, they were honored with once-in-a-lifetime ceremonies as representatives of five nations united in Camden to celebrate the lives of the fallen. For those 14, the story continues. Next time on Mission History, we'll go to Camden, South Carolina, to hear about the effort to preserve one of the few remaining battlefields of the Revolutionary War. You'll hear about the exhaustive archaeological work that went into caring for the soldiers, the ceremonies to honor them, and their reburial under the supervision of authorities from Arlington National Cemetery. That's next time on Mission History. This series of Mission History is a production of Black Barrel Media, Q-Code, and the historic Camden Foundation. The series was researched, written, and directed by me, Chris Wimmer. It was produced by myself and Mandy Wimmer. Our executive producers are Carrie Briggs for the historic Camden Foundation, and Steve Wilson and Dave Henning for Q-Code. Marketing lead for Q-Code was Ellie Kotapish. Original music by Rob Valier. Featured violin by, by Kevin Huang. Historical advisors were Owen Lurie, historian with the Maryland State Archives, and Jim Paikooch, South Carolina historian and author. Their help was invaluable. Extra special thanks goes to the team at the Historic Camden Foundation Carrie, Stacy, Margaret, Catherine, Will, Lance, Len, Davey, Liz, Barbara, Arthur, and Marley.